Okay, I remember the date on this, uh, August 13th, 1993, 9.27 p.m., a short little round guy knocked on my door. Um, I answered the door. His name was Steve Kowalski. He was standing on my front porch, and he handed me a summons. Anybody ever been served a summons before? Anyone here? It's not a good thing. <laughs> if, you, if you get served a summons, it probably means somebody uh, is taking you to court, and that's the way it was for me. It was from the Chancery Court of Pulaski County, Arkansas District Number 5, case number 93462. And it was signed by Judge Helen Brantley. How many of you know what the word litigious means? If you're an American, and we have many people here that are not Americans, and that's good. I want to have more people that are not Americans here. I want to have more Americans, too. I want more people to come and worship the Lord with us. But if you're an American, you know what litigious means. Because Americans are... Very litigious. And all that means is we like to sue each other with great regularity and vigor. It doesn't matter if we have a case or not. We just like to sue each other. The, the, the U.S. judicial system has degenerated into kind of a lottery for lawyers. And so they, they, they'll bring any kind of suit, whether it seems frivolous or not. I don't know if you heard this, but last year it was a big deal in the news for a couple of weeks. Some guy was suing his dry cleaners because they lost his pants. And, you know, that's ridiculous enough, but they sued the dry cleaners for like $14 million. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like a lot for a pair of pants. seems like a lot. I could be wrong about that. You know, I, I really like my pants too, but I, I don't know. $14 million, that's a lot. So I, I've seen the U.S. justice system from about every angle. Uh, I've been a defendant. I've been sued. I've been a, a witness, which I, I learned a lot in that. It was, that was a great experience. I was a juror which was a quite an alarming experience as I, as I began to understand exactly how people sit around a table and come to a decision. It was quite alarming for me. Uh, it's amazing that justice has ever served. But uh, I've, never, I've never been a plaintiff. I've never sued anyone. But I learned two things going through this process, going through the court. I learned at least two things. One is men try, but men aren't very good at actually getting to the truth and dispensing justice. Most of the time it comes down who, who's got the slickest lawyer, and that's unfortunate. But the thing I walked away with, the thing I walked away with was the absolute power of the court to do whatever it chose to do in my life. The judge had the power to radically change my life for good or for bad. It really was up to her. And I really felt quite helpless sitting there. And I had my attorney and he was doing his thing and, and that, that was good. He was, he was making uh, arguments for me. But I realized... <laughs> You know, it's, it, it's in her hands, and she has the power to change my life in a radical way. And I thought this was a great spiritual lesson, because we all have a summons coming, right? Now, while you will, will probably never encounter Steve Kowalski, you will encounter his cosmic counterpart. And while you will never stand in front of Judge Ellen Brantley, I doubt, unless you take up residence in Little Rock, um, you will also stand in front of her cosmic counterpart because death is God's summons as one uh, as one person said death is God's errand boy and Steve Kowalski was was Judge Brantley's errand boy and he would go out and tell people you have to come stand in front of the judge and death is God's errand boy death is is God's summons and we all have that coming
The summons that Steve Kowalski handed me, it said this, you are hereby notified that a lawsuit has been filed against you. The relief asked is stated in the attached complaint. You are hereby ordered to file a pleading and thereafter appear and present your defense. Romans chapter 1 and the following chapters, it gives us some feel of what, the, what it's about, that, that each one of us will be called into the courtroom of God. And I want you to understand this. In the courtroom of God, God is the plaintiff. Okay? God is the plaintiff. God is the prosecutor. God is the witness. And God is the judge. And when God brings a suit, it's factual. And when, when God makes His case, it's airtight. And when God gives His testimony, it's true. And when God renders His judgment, it's final. It's eternally final. In the courtroom of God, there'll be no cross-examination. There'll be no rebuttals. There'll be no plea bargains. There'll be no objections. And there will be no appeals in the courtroom of God. One thing that the Bible makes very, very clear, God is just. God is a perfectly just God. Psalm 89, 14, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. Psalm 19, 9, The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. A.W. Tozer says, Justice is not something God does. It's who He is. Let me ask you, do you want justice from God? Does anybody in here think they want justice from God? We don't want justice from God. Because we would be hopelessly condemned. We need grace from God. I love what D.A. Carson talks about, about all, of, all moral intelligent beings coming before the bar of God for judgment. And I love what he says about this. And I want you to hear me. And I want you to think about this. And I, hopefully you'll remember this. You know, the church has gotten so squeamish about talking about hell and and, and, and the punishment of God. and You don't hear it talked about much, but the Bible, the Bible does not shy away from talking about eternal punishment. The Bible makes it explicitly clear. In fact, there's more from the lips of Jesus Christ than from any other source. He talks about the reality of, of eternal judgment. Listen to what D.A. Carson says. I think this is very important. One of the things the Bible insists upon is that in the end, not only will justice be done, I love this, not only will justice be done, but justice will be seen to be done. And what I told the morning congregation, there won't be anybody walking away from the bar of God saying, that's wrong. I was treated unjustly. That's not fair. That will never happen. Even the man that lands in hell for, for his own sin, he will not be able to say, I was not judged properly or correctly or justly. Not only will justice be done, I want you to remember this, not only will justice be done, but justice will be seen to be done. And D.A. Carson closes that quote like this, and every mouth will be stopped. There's not going to be any complaining about the perfect justice and the perfect disposition of that justice from the bar of God. There will be no appeal because it will be perfect. It will be pristine. It will be flawless. I love what John Piper says. He says, At the bar of God, all moral accounts in the universe will be perfectly and eternally settled. There will be no outstanding claims or grievances. So let's look at 1 John chapter 2. You say, well, Jim, what's that got to do with the text? John is going to be using legal language tonight. And it's important 
It's important. And I, and I, think, I think that the intro sets the stage for us. That's what it has to do with the text. First John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is uh, the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. I've been saying this for the last couple of weeks. This will be my fourth sermon on 1 John. And maybe some of you in the first three sermons are feeling a little traumatized uh, because John is a black and white preacher. He calls sin, sin, and he says what it is. And one thing I love about John is, you know, he learned from the best. He watched Christ preach for three years. And John preaches the same way. He writes the same way. He calls sin, sin. And, and uh, he preaches like sin really matters and like hell is real and like Jesus Christ is the most important thing in your life. And I've said this to you many times. That's because He is. There's nothing, there's nothing in front of Christ. Nothing. Nothing in front of Christ. And John keeps talking to us in these unrelenting and unbending and exacting terms. We saw it in chapter 1, verse 7. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet we walk in the darkness, John just says it right out. He says we're liars. He says we're liars and we don't practice the truth. Chapter 2, verse 4. The one who says I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments, he's a liar. The truth is not in him. Chapter 2, verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Chapter 3, verse 6, no one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. There are many, many, many more statements like this in this letter of 1 John. And I was thinking after these first three messages, we could be somewhat traumatized because the, the immediate sense that you get, that many get, is that I'm not going to make the cut here. I'm not going to make the cut. That's an American uh, euphemism. I don't know if you know what that means. That means I'm not going to make it in. I'm not going to make it because I'm not perfect. And and uh, so you know that's the immediate sense you get. You realize you're not perfect. You realize you're not sinless. You realize that you're not completely free from the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. I love what John MacArthur says. He says historically it's true throughout church history. People who read First uh, John at first are stunned by his words. It sounds as if He's calling us to sinlessness. Oh, and He is. He's calling us to sinlessness. What did 1 Peter 1, 14-16 say? As obedient children, do not be conformed to your former lust, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Holy. When you read 1 John, you realize just how far the modern church has drifted away from the true gospel. And it's a tragedy. It really is in most places. You realize just how far we've drifted away from the biblical gospel. You know, the modern church has gotten into the habit. They'll pro proclaim anyone a Christian. All you've got to do is these three things. You're in. The Bible never says this. The Bible never says this. The Bible says you must genuinely repent... And you must genuinely believe. When the Bible says repent and believe, you could just insert the word genuine. That's what it means. It has to be genuine. It has to be in your life. It's not just a religious thing you do on Sunday. It's the way you live. It's the way you talk. 
It's the way you raise your kids. It's the way you treat your spouse. It's the way you spend your money. It's everything. When you truly repented and believed, it informs everything else in your life. Everything. Everything. In your life. I love what James Boyce says, that great American theologian. He says, it's a tragic error, this idea. And wherever did it come from that one can call themselves a Christian and not follow Jesus Christ? And that's, a, that's an epidemic in the modern church today. So John is giving us the truth. He doesn't finesse it. He just tells it like it is. So, is John calling us to sinless perfection? Yes, you bet he is. Is John teaching that the Christian will attain sinless perfection? No. And I want you to hear me say this. Is there a contradiction here that he's calling us to it, but we're never going to get there until we actually lay eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there a contradiction that he's calling us to uh, sinless perfection and the fact that he's teaching we will never uh, attain sinless perfection? No, there's no contradiction here. All you've got to do is go read Romans chapter 7. And Paul is revealing his angst over the sin that indwells him. The sin that is, indwells him. Romans seven nineteen. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not, or pardon me, that I do not wish. Romans seven twenty one. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. Romans seven twenty four. He cries out, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? I told you last week that sin is a war. And if you're not at war with the sin in your life, then you're probably not a Christian. If you've gotten comfortable with it, and you've gotten in bed with it, and this is how you live, and this is how you breathe and talk, you're probably not a Christian. This is one of the things that John is saying. Christians, what did we learn last week? Christians do what with their sin? They don't hide it. They don't suppress it. They don't try to run from it. What do they do? They come to the Father and what? They confess it. Christian, a real Christian will deal with their sin. They will deal with their sin. Sin is expensive. It costs a lot. And as we talked about last week, God hates it. You remember what we learned in chapter 1, verse 4. John talks about these things we write to you that, that our joy may be complete. Every, all, Christians' joy may be complete. And then he writes over here, today he writes, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. There's a connection here between, and a Christian understands this, there's a connection between the joy of God and the sin that's in our life. And if we're not dealing with the sin that's in our life, we're going to lose the joy. We saw it last week. What did uh, David write in that great Psalm 51 when he's confessing his sin? He's pouring his heart out before God. What does he say? He says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation because I have lost it. I have lost it. I have lost it and he wants it back. Sin is costly. And I told you last week, God does not wink at the sin of his children. And if you persist in sin in your life, if you allow it to persist in your life and you don't repent and you don't leave it behind, God will discipline you. He will discipline you. This is the word of God. He will discipline his children. We are legitimate children. 
And He disciplines us because He loves us. So the bar, John sets the bar high for a lot of reasons. Because of joy, because of discipline, because of the adverse consequences of sin. I bet many of you could give testimony. Yes, I got involved in sin and there was a high cost to it in a temporal sense. I bet many of you could give testimony to that effect. Of course, God is calling us to sinlessness. He hates it. All you have to do is look at the cross and you see how God hates sin. That's all you have to do. And look at that bloody cross. Of course, God is calling us out of out of sin and out of the adverse consequences of it and out of the, His own displeasure and His own discipline. He's calling us to that superior happiness that we only find in Christ Jesus. I love John. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. And then he writes in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I don't want, I'm writing these things that you may not sin. But then he says this awesome thing. And you have to, you know, if you're, if you're studying 1 John, it's so awesome to see this verse. It's so awesome to see this phrase. Because like I said, you're starting to think, I'm not going to make the cut here. Because I'm not perfect. And I'm not, I'm not holy like I should be. And this, this one phrase right here tells us that John is not teaching that we will attain sinless perfection. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous. And I want to make sure you hear me, and I'll probably say it three to five times. John is not teaching that a Christian will attain sinlessness. If anyone tries to teach you that to be a Christian, you, you must be sinless, they have not rightly divided the Word of God. That is wrong. That is false. I just want to make sure you understand me say that. John is not teaching that. He's calling us to it because of the cost involved with sin and how heinous it is before our Father. You know, the Christian gets to the point where he doesn't want to sin because he loves God. It's not because uh, some religious rule or something I learned in catechism. It's because I love God and I don't want to grieve my God. And I don't want to be cut off from Him. I don't want to lose that joy and that intimacy that I have with Him. This is why the true Christian deals with the sin in his life. I love this. My little children. This phrase uh, repeats uh, nine times in the, God, in the, in the letter. First uh, John, nine times. I love this, this, this apostle of love and how he's calling us, his, uh, he's calling us little children. And, and the reference here is that we are born of God. We are born from above. We have received that spirit of adoption, Romans chapter 8, where we cry out, Abba, Father. We are legitimate sons and daughters of God. This is what John is saying when he says, My little children. And there's a beautiful, beautiful truth here that gets lost in the English. And I want to say it to you. Uh, I want to try to, to, to explain this nuance in the Greek here. Uh, when, when, when John says, if anyone sins, this is called a third class conditional subjunctive. Okay, and I'm not going to go into all of that, but I want you to understand what it means. The if in this sentence is not just saying that there's a possibility of sin. It is saying that there will be a certainty of sin in the life the, in the life of the believer. It doesn't mean that we're not supposed to fight it and by the power of God, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, we're not supposed to fight sin in our life because you're going to beat one sin and boom, there's another one you didn't even know you had. 
The closer you get to God, the more you see your sin. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. So, it's not, it's not that there's a possibility of sin. The way the Greek is constructed here, it's not if and it probably won't happen. It's if and it will happen. John knows it will happen. John's writing this. He knows it's real in his own life. He's no different than Abraham or Moses or, or David or Peter or Paul or you or me. And I, I asked the morning congregation, I said, if you think you're sinless, I want to talk to you after the service. We need to talk because you don't understand either the word sin or the word holy if you think you're sinless before God. There's something you've missed and I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you because there's a mistake being made in your theology. John says, I don't want you to sin. You should not sin. You should stop it. You should walk in the light. You should practice the truth. You should walk as the Lord Jesus walks. But if we sin, we have an advocate before the Father. Now, what does this word advocate mean? It's, it, it, it's a parakletus in, in, the, in the Greek. It appears five times in the New Testament. Four times it's, it's translated comforter. And it's the word when Jesus was talking to the disciples about, about the Holy Spirit coming. But in this context, it's, it's translated advocate because of the legal, legal language here. And it's one who comes alongside, one who gives aid, one who pleads a case, one who intercedes. Oh, there's one more thing that summons from Steve Kowalski said. It says, if, if you desire to be represented by an attorney, you should immediately contact one so that an answer can be filed for you within the time allowed. I didn't have an attorney. You know, I, so I called some friends and I said... I, I need a guy. And they said, oh, you go to this guy. He's a good guy. So I go to this guy. And as I told the morning congregation, I gave him all my money. And he goes, I'll be your friend. I'm on your side. So it was after I gave him all the money that the relationship really uh, developed. And, and uh, you know, he says, I, man, I'm, I'm down with you. I'm going to go to the mat with you on this. I'm going to plead your case. I'm going to intercede for you. And, I, and I'll say this, I think he did an adequate job, but when you give somebody all your money, you know, you expect more than that, right? You expect, you know, but I never got the sense that the guy was going to go to the mat for me, that he really cared too much more than the fact that this was a good payday for him. But what I want to say to you is if Jesus Christ is your advocate, it's not like that with him. He's committed to you 1,000%. And He will go to the mat for you. He has gone to the mat for you. He went to the cross for you. He went to the cross for you. We have no dispassionate advocate. Christ Jesus has expended Himself to us. For us, rather. He has expended Himself for us. What a great advocate. What a great Savior. And it says, He Himself, verse 2, is the propitiation for our sins. I'm not going to embarrass you, but if you don't know what propitiation means and you call yourself a Christian, this is not good. So, I'm going to teach you tonight if you don't know what propitiation means. I want you to not walk out of here and not know what propitiation means. Okay? It means that what Jesus did on the cross was remove the penalty of our sin from us. What is the penalty of our sin? Well, it's death, it's judgment, it's wrath, and it's hell. 
Jesus has removed that from us because He took the justice that the law of God requires. He took it within Himself. My, the justice I deserved, the wrath of God I deserved, will not fall on me. It fell on Christ. And I want you to, if you don't understand propitiation, this is a word you need to learn and understand as a Christian. This is a worship-provoking word, and it should be in your prayers and in your devotion. Christ Jesus is my propitiation. He took the wrath I deserved in the cross. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, it's Isaiah 53. You guys know the text, and I'm just going to turn there real quick, and I'm going to read a few verses. Isaiah 53 is propitiation. Isaiah 53 is propitiation. It's what propitiation looks like. And Isaiah writes, Surely, he's talking about Christ here, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, and smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and his, by his scourging we are healed. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself a guilt offering. There's this, there's this goofy theology sometimes you hear if, if you go to seminary and you may run into it out, out in the world, probably not. Some places in some churches maybe. It's a goofy kind of thing. But it says that nice Jesus had to save us from mean father. That nice Jesus is saving us from mean father. That's a false dichotomy. This is not the picture that needs to be drawn from Scripture. That nice Jesus is saving us from wrathful father. God sent, let me just read it, 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us, and so God sent His Son because God loved us. You know, it's a great quote by A.W. Tozer. All of God does all that God does. Okay? There's no, um, you can't break Him into parts. Yes, we understand the Trinity, that's another sermon, or 8, or 12, or 40. But, all of God does all that God does. And this, it was the love of God, the love of the Father, the love of the Son, the love of the Spirit. Then He became our propitiation. And let me tell you how I know this is a biblical fact. Because the Lord Jesus hates sin every bit as much as the Father. What does the Revelation tell us? Two times it talks about the fierce wrath of who? The Lamb. And men will cry out and they will shout, May the mountains and the rocks fall upon us. And hide us from the fierce wrath of God. Friends, I want you to hear this and I want you to understand this. God's just wrath against my sin and against your sin, if you belong to Him tonight, it was poured out on God. Who crucified God? You know, when Mel Gibson's movie came out, oh, it's anti-Semitic. Oh, you know, it's anti-Semitic. What does the Bible say? Who crucified God? Well, the Gentiles and the Jews, but God. Preeminently. He came. Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. Nobody can take his life. No Jew, no Gentile, no demon. No one could take his life. He says, I come for my sheep. I love my sheep. I lay down my life for my sheep. That's the kind of advocate we have. <laughs> you don't have to give him a lot of money. Jesus says, repent and believe. And I'll give you life. And I'm your advocate. 
And we can walk into the courtroom of God and Jesus will say, He's mine. He's mine. I took the penalty for His sins. He's, I'm His advocate. He's mine. He belongs to me. What an awesome thought. What an awesome thought. And verse 2 continues that he, he, He's our propitiation, but not only for ours only, but for those of the whole world. I want you to understand Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for all who will repent and believe. Every woman, boy, man, and girl who will repent and believe, Christ has become their advocate. And His sacrifice is sufficient. This is the unbelievable, the unnecessary, the unwarranted overture of God. Repent and believe, and I'm your advocate. I'm your Savior. What an awesome thing. What an awesome thing. We have a passionate advocate. He is unstoppable. He is unbeatable. He is invincible. There's another cool thing. As I was studying this lesson, uh, I was thinking about, um, you know, I had to go find my lawyer. You know, I had to go find the guy and fork over a ton of cash. And, and uh, it's not like that with Jesus. Oh, what does the Bible teach? He came looking for me. He came looking for his people. Christ has come for His people. He's come for His people. We don't have to go. We don't have to go find an advocate. We don't have to go hire uh, uh, an advocate. He's come for us. He's come for us to be our advocate. I love that. You know, you go back to the, to to the garden and Adam's hiding in the bushes. Okay, does Adam look for God or does God look for Adam? You remember the story. I think you get the point. I want to say again, John is not teaching that Christians will attain sinlessness. We won't get there in this life. Although we fight with sin and, and we have the power within us not to sin, uh, we have the powerful claim. You know, the Bible tells us that, that He won't bring us into temptation that we cannot resist. And the Holy Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit within us and we have this power, but we will sin. And I love that John, that the Holy Spirit has instructed John to include this great, this great consolation because. And friends, I want to say this to you. In the modern church, and I know, I know you probably say, well, Jim's always on, he's always talking down on the modern church. Well, it's because somebody needs to, one. And two, I know that most of you will be leaving here in a short time, and I want you to go find a church that actually preaches what the Bible says, not somebody that preaches something that's warm and fuzzy and I'm okay, you're okay. I want you to, get, I want you to find a church that actually opens the Bible and says what God says. That's why I talk about this all the time. Not only does it really bug me, you know, I listen, this is really bad. I told the morning congregation, it's bad when I do this. It's Giuseppe's fault. So you talk to him about it. But he gave me a tape last night of John Piper. We were coming home on the train. He gave me this tape on John Piper. John Piper was preaching to all these preachers, okay? And that's never good either. <laughs> and, and Piper got so jazzed up. He said, listen, if you don't take it serious, who's going to take it serious? He says, your sermons need to be bloodstained and hellfire singed. He says, if you don't care enough to say it, who's going to say it? He said, preach the word, brother. I think that's a message that the church needs to hear. We need to have men who have the courage to stand in the pulpit and, and, just, and love people enough to say, this is what God says. You probably won't come back next week, but this is what God says. 
I'm not here to build a huge church and, and, and have a huge budget and build a great monument to myself. I'm here to preach the Word of God. As Karen told someone this week, this is my worship to preach the Word of God. That's my worship. I'm not going to change it for you or anybody. And I want you to come back next week. But I'm not going to change the Word of God to get you to come back next week. I'm almost done. So we have all this sloppy and syrupy and cotton candy theology in the, in the church. And John says, here's a warning. John gives us a warning and a threat. And he cautions us, sin is dangerous and God hates it. And if you call yourself a Christian, you need to be running from it. And you, do, you need to be at war with it in your life. This is what John is saying. But then he says this beautiful thing. But if we sin, and we will, we have an advocate. Oh, how beautiful. Oh, if this verse wasn't in 1 John, oh, it would be hard. It would be a hard book. It would be an infinitely hard book. But it is in John. I'm going to close with, uh, with Romans chapter 8. You don't need to turn there unless you just want to. Romans chapter 8. You guys know the great text. If God is for us, What? Who can be against us? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Paul says, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall separate us uh, from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Friends, the Bible tells us that God loves His people with an everlasting love. He's voluntarily laid His life down for His sheep. No one can snatch us out of His hand and He will never leave us or forsake us. And when we walk into the courtroom of God, He'll be waiting for us and He'll say, He's mine and He's mine forever. I saved Him. And I, you know, we talked about this last week and I'm done, I promise I'm done. We talked about this last week. We confess our sin. God is faithful. How is God faithful? Because He's made a covenant with you and me that in Christ, He... he he doesn't hold our sin against us. He's faithful to remember that covenant. And He's, he's just. How is He just? God never forgets that Jesus took my, pen, my penalty. So I'm not going to have to pay. Jesus paid. He's faithful. He remembers His covenant with His people. And He's just. He remembers that the penalty of my sin, the sins of His people, it happened on the cross. Friends, we've got an awesome gospel. We've got a beautiful gospel. You need to be sharing this with your friends. You need, to be, you need to be sharing it with your friends. You need to be inviting your friends to come and worship the Lord Jesus with us. We've got an awesome gospel. It's the best news that have, has ever fallen on the ears of men. And shame on us. Shame on us if we are not proclaiming it. Shame on us if we are not proclaiming it. Friends, this is, I'm done. I promise. But this is why. This is why God has left us here. You know, it, it, we could worship Him better there. We could fellowship with Him better there. We could do everything better there. There's only one thing we can't do there. We can't witness there. And He's left us here for that reason. And yes, He gives us a lot of subordinate joys and pleasures. Praise God for that. But He's left His people here for one reason primarily. That's to proclaim the glory of Christ. I'm done.
Beautiful God, we thank You for this wonderful Gospel that we have. Praise You, King Jesus. Praise You that You are our Advocate. You have come to save us. And Father, we thank You. We thank You that You have loved us like this. You've loved us with an everlasting love. There are no contingencies. There are no conditions. You've loved us. As we were talking in Bible study this week, You loved us because You loved us. And You've come to redeem us. And all who will repent and believe, every last person who will repent and believe, will be saved from the awful justice we deserve. King Jesus paid it for us. He paid the price. What an awesome Gospel. We praise You, Lord God. We thank You, Lord God. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're going to partake of the table and uh, uh, have communion here. And, and most of you know, we, I think we have a visitor or two, and I just want you to know we have open communion here. So anyone, who's, you know, anyone who is, is uh, professed Christ as Lord and Savior and followed Him in baptism and is ready to come to the table, you know, um, I, I don't think I've read this to you in a long time, and I thought it might be good to just read it to you. You know, Paul has this warning about coming to the table in an unworthy manner. And I'm just going to read it, just a couple of verses. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of Christ. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and have died. What he's saying is we are responsible to come to the table in the right state of mind. We're to, leave our, we're to be willing to lay down our sin, confess it, and repent of it. And we intend to leave it there. We intend to move on in sanctification. And, and this, is, this is a serious charge that Paul gives to the church. He's giving to you and I. We don't come to the table in a legalistic or... Uh, superficial way we come we come to remember what he's done and because we love it and we want to live it so pray, please pray Adam will play the song while he's playing you're welcome to come and, and, and get the elements take the elements back to your chair and after the song is over I will stand and read a verse and then we will partake of the elements okay <laughs>